Freshly ground, uh, coming us to uh, uh, bringing us to eight o'clock, eight minutes after two, and uh, I've got a packed studio, so do apologise for uh, being a bit distracted there. But we've got wonderful guests in studio, and uh, we're kicking off a Media Freedom Week, a big, big conversation. I think South Africans uh, media has to have this week about media freedom, and I'm joined in studio by Jean-Philippe uh, Remy, and uh, he is what they call. Uh, an Africa bureau chief. I'm well, going to ask you. Oh. I, I, I had this word. <laughs> I'm going to ask you about that purpose. title because <laughs> <laughs> that 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 I think is very interesting. It looks like we have like a whole building full of people. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, there's but there's one individual at home in his back office and that no, kind of thing. We, 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 yeah, we have a bunch of free, actually, yes. uh, which is not much. And uh, it means technically that I've been uh, given the responsibility to, to, to cover uh, things for my newspaper, Le Monde, which is mm-hmm. a, a general mm-hmm. newspaper uh, at the, um, for the whole continent. Yeah. Uh, the very notion, the very important notion is with a, a way of looking at things on a continental scale, on a local, global, everything. Yeah. All types. Well, that's that's good because I am going to. How long have you been in the continent for? Uh, it's been twenty-one years as a whole, yeah. meaning uh, eleven years in Kenya and ten years happily in South Africa. Okay, Khadija Patel, editor in chief of the Mail and Garden, also joins us. Good afternoon, Khadija. Thanks for coming in. Good afternoon and thank you. Big title as well. Big title, big responsibility. And you're one of those, I mean, we we take our time reading the Mail and Guardian. So we look through every little thing. And so when we want to rent, because we've also got the weekend, you see, to do all of that reading. Um, but that's a lot of pressure as well for yourselves as, as the publication. No, certainly. I think that the reputation of the Mail and Guardian uh, is well established and people expect the best quality journalism uh, from this publication and indeed from everybody who works under this title. So there's always that you know, that sense of responsibility uh, within the newsroom. But I think that uh, beyond that, what brings people together at the MNG is a love for what they do, but also an understanding of the importance of, uh, you know, of what we do. Um, And the MNG affords you that freedom to actually chase the stories in more depth, to chase stories off, uh, you know, the news agenda and to actually explore a little bit more what makes us, uh, you know, who we are Mm. in the current moment. Mm. I'm also joined by Azola Daile, who's a researcher at Media Monitoring Africa. And you guys are splashing out this entire week. I mean, you have gone really, really big in in honoring Media Freedom Week, haven't you? Yeah, no, definitely. um, We've done that. So we have a very um, jam-packed week in commemoration of um, the 19th of October, 1977. But of course, uh, it was a day, but we've dedicated a week to um, commemorate the thing with um, sort of different, you know, shows for different audiences um, throughout the week. So what I'm going to do, I mean, it's very easy to talk about media freedom, um, but I also want to talk about it's media freedom forms... uh, its identity in a very difficult environment at a different time, at a specific time. Um, um, Traditional media is going through its own uh, difficulties, transitions, and so on. So I think it would be silly for us to discuss media freedom and not discuss all the other things that are happening uh, within media spaces. And and specifically with you uh, as well, Khadija, you know, Mail and Garden has always been that thick newspaper. We take and we take our time reading. 
but it's also mm. going to be one of those that I think is going to be hugely affected by how we consume the news now. Um, so that week-long prep, as you're walking in a story, we've, we've you know, you we, we broke the story, we read through the story, there have been tweets, there's been Facebook, there's been everything else in the analyzer. By the time we hit Friday, we kind of, okay, well, we're done with the story. Mm. That, that's hard for people like yourselves who are doing the real work, who are, who are genuine journalists, who are taking the time to put t- together uh, a story. And by the time we hit Friday, we've had everybody else but proper journalists distill the story for us. So, yeah, I think that in many ways this is, uh, you know, th- this is the reality that journalists around the world have been grappling with for a number of years now. And I don't think that there, it's not necessarily an existential threat mm. to what we do, but rather I think that it emphasizes instead uh, the need for journalists who are able to delve beneath the quick bites of news because, we're, you know, we are inundated with news. You open up your social platforms and there's news all the time. So there is a sense of news fatigue, Mm. um, you know, plaguing South Africans and especially South Africa because there's always something going on. Mm. But I think beyond that, there is a need, uh, you know, for journalists to be able to delve beneath what happened to explain why and how things are happening. Mm. And also to, you know, force our attention away from those quick bites to, you know, the many, many areas of South Africa and indeed the rest of the continent, Mm. you know, where things are happening that we need to train our attention towards as well. So as much as this is a responsibility for journalists i think that there is also responsibility for consumers of media mm. um to understand what goes into you know making a story what goes into breaking a story and indeed the fact that it's not that it certainly doesn't come for free yeah. um i remember a few years ago i was at wits um moderating a panel there and someone put their hand up and said, I love the MNG, but it's far too expensive. And I, I and I understand that it is a very, uh, you know, it is an expensive publication to purchase week in and week out. But at the same time, when I, uh, you know, when I took through this young man uh, into the process of making the news and explaining to him that we're just people, you know, at the MNG who also have children to put through school, who have rent to pay, and it and I remember this look that had come across his face. It was almost as if he had never understood that the way. MNG to be made up of people who also have, yeah. you know, their own obligations. And that really is the conundrum that we're faced around the world, not just South Africa, not just the MNG. How do we make the work of journalism or the work of journalists rather sustainable, mm. um, you know, in the coming years? Yeah. And I mean, to, to you, Jean-Philippe, this very point about news is expensive I mean, because we don't news is very very expensive to it collect. is it's it is terribly expensive to to produce and uh having a a continental uh vision requires a lot of of money not not for my uh incredible uh, way of life but yeah. because everything costs money of course and uh you if you take our newspaper uh the foreign desk, mm. including all the continents, yes. is of course one of the extremely costly part of the of the newspaper, the most costly. Mm. Um, but I'd like to add something to to what Kadja was saying. You know, back to like ten years ago, we were we have been told we've been told that the, our 
economic pattern was completely dead. Yes. That printing was yeah. dead. That you wouldn't find uh, a copy of Le Monde and many other newspapers in the f next five years. And people with a lot of, you know, n supposedly knowledge and everything. And it, it turned out that it, it's not the case. Mm. At the same time, I it's partly true. Uh, the sales of printing copies of newspapers are diminishing globally. But there's a mixed economy which is developing. Where you 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 go a bit online, you go a bit on print, you go a bit on everything, and with including other way of of distributing information, a way of spreading information. And this very challenging moment for media is also a very interesting one. I'm not saying this because it's an easy thing to yes. say. I truly think. Um, uh, talking only about my own newspaper, sometimes when I'm reading the archives. Um, I, I don't think there's a golden age like uh, 40 years ago. <laughs> I think it was not good at all for certain aspects, especially about covering Africa, mm -hmm. <laughs> if we start with this. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I'm, I'm glad in a way that we are faced by so many, uh, it's, it's a bit life or death mm. <laughs> moments, yeah. but what I see every week, uh, I, I'm not saying this because you're here, Kedja, but what is the level of information you can find in a Mail and Guardian, mm. the, the, the level of information you can find in South Africa mm. in general, in, 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 in medias? You think, wow, what the heck? This is, is it a really dying industry? Mm. It's obviously not. Tough times, of course. And about your question about how much does it cost you to, to travel, to, to, to report properly about a, a whole part of the world, mm. it costs a lot of money. And I'm very lucky to write for Le Monde because it's one of the very rare medias in France, for yeah. example, with uh, a bureau, even yeah. if it's my, <laughs> my small group of three people, um, uh, to, to, to have the means to sometimes on a shoestring, but at least to travel to, to the Congo, to Botswana, to wherever. Uh, not all the time, it's yes. difficult, it's costly. Um, I think it's a very important point because there's so many um, media from in South Africa in particular, but in the rest of the continent, who desperately need this money. And I would love to see an initiative. I don't know, speaking about um, Facebook, Google, mm. all the people who make a lot of money mm. with the content we are producing, yeah. uh, that would be great if they were considering this necessity of helping this, uh, this coverage. So, Azola, you know, you guys have gone big, as we said earlier. Mm -hmm. um, you tap into everybody's kind of work, so to speak. Yeah. Media freedom as it stands right now, from where you guys are, with all the assessments that you've done, do you think media freedom is, is something that we can be proud of in South Africa? Do you think the media in this country is free? Um, taking into consideration where we come from as a country, then um, definitely you could say that, you know, the media is free. I mean, they're free to self-regulate, um, you know, report freely on malfeasance, whether it's in the public or the private sector. But of course, there has been, you know, sort of challenges, uh, as we've seen uh, lately. Um, you recently spoke about, you know, how um, Khadija spoke about how people view the MNG, you know, as um, an expensive publication, whereas it carries you know probably the most weight compared to you know other publications in the country in terms of how it sits and analyzes news and publishes a thick um publication on on, on a friday i mean be beyond that there's also you know shrink shrinkage in, in in newsrooms where we are seeing you know an exodus of your senior and very coveted journalists leaving the profession to go um, for greener pastures maybe in pr and many other instances um you know also dwindling sales um in, in, in newsrooms. So these contribute a lot to, in terms of the quality of 
journalism that you know um, is produced by newsrooms and then what happens is that um no, no, no. It's fine. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Yes. So what happens in newsroom is that, um, you know, as I said, there's an exodus of senior um, journalists within the newsrooms, but uh, with things like social media, you know, then the, the because the be, there becomes an, an, an excess of uh, information in, in those particular platforms, which is a direct linkage to the absence of, you know, credible journalists in um, in newsrooms. So, you know, Khadija, for me, that's that's where the nuance is. It's not as black and white as... Is it free? Is it not free? I, I don't think those days are what we're discussing now. I mean, I think there, there are other places where you have the whole president fighting with journalists in America and so on. That's, that's, that's something else. But I think the juniorization of newsrooms, as we've just been speaking about, in, its way, in a funny kind of way, has compromised the freedom of, 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 of the media in a way in this country, don't you think? Where uh, a very junior journalist is not able to delve into the nuances or into a story in the way in which a senior person would have been able to. Um, dumbing down of content, uh, not being able to run after a story in the manner that one is one requires to to run after, and in fact, even the time that is given to that particular person, because there's just no money, mm-hmm. you know, is isn't that where the difficulty is with with this thing about media freedom? Yes, yeah, so I think that uh, you know, especially when we think about why we're celebrating media freedom this week, yeah. right? And we think this is the anniversary of the Black Wednesday, yeah. um, you know, basically massacre, mm. um, and you know, a huge repression of journalists, where journalists were uh, thrown into jail, where journalists were tortured. We've come a long way as South Africans since then, certainly, mm-hmm. right? I, um, and I think that you know, when there are cases and there are isolated cases of journalists, particularly community journalists, uh, coming under attack, um, you know, there are organisations like Media Monitoring Africa and SANAF and others who uh, you know who are able to you know to raise a stink about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly there isn't a legislated um, environment in which uh, you know journalists are repressed or harassed, mm-hmm. but. Um, you know, media, the, the threats to media freedom, to your point, yes, come in various guises now. Mm. Um, I'm a little impatient with the talking points around juniorization of the newsroom because I think that it is too simplistic mm-hmm. um, and it tends to put the onus or the burden um, for the quality of news and journalism uh, on the backs of young people. Mm. Um, and I think that mm. that is sometimes Mm-mm. very, very mm. unfair. Mm. Um, the fact is that South Africa also has rapidly changed mm. um, and uh, we have had to deal with um, you know the need for transforming um, you know the faces in our newsroom yeah. as well as transforming the yes. you know the gaze uh, you know of uh, you know of editors while also developing a new cohort yes. of journalists so it is a very uh, you know fine balance to tread while at the same time let's be clear that resources are very diminishing very scarce <laughs> yes um, so yes these are threats to media freedom in that um, you know particularly small independent publishers like ourselves um, you know are constantly having to grapple with fewer and fewer resources mm. so yes that is um, you know it is an existential threat it does imperil media freedom there are um, but I think that what we you know beyond that mm. I would also like to emphasize that um, the uh, you know the harassment of journalists is, has not gone away yeah, yeah. Um, 
there are particularly women journalists yeah. face unprecedented levels of harassment on digital platforms. Just this morning, Konita Hunter, a journalist with Sunday Times, shared an email that she had received um, after moderating a panel on the rising level of fascism in India. And the kind of things that are said there, um, you know, journalists, women journalists routinely receive rape threats on Twitter. That is normal. Um, and this is this is a threat to media freedom. This is um, a threat to what we do. Um, and no, there isn't, um, you know, there isn't a solution to this beyond the fact that we have to continue to do the hard work of ensuring that we, you know, that, uh, you know, that there are politicians, that there are people in leadership who will continue to do the hard work of fighting for the existence of media, for fighting for the existence of us, to, uh, or right, the right of uh, for us to do what we do even when it is not complimentary of mm. them. Mm -hmm. And we need more, you know, more people in leadership to be able to stand up and do that. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think that the current atmosphere does not lend itself mm -hmm. to that. Mm -hmm. That too many politicians, um, and there is one political party that often takes the brunt here, but I think that this goes across. In my experience, um, you know, every political party in South Africa has some responsibility to bear here because if you can't say that you are all for media freedom and then the day that um, you know a news publisher publishes something that you don't like, mm -hmm. you're suddenly lobbying people yeah. against them. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it cuts both ways. Yeah. Jean-Philippe, I mean, we've discussed this before where the, you, there is an appreciation from uh, people like yourselves who say, my goodness, you know, this country has come a long way. The kind of work that the journalists have done uh, in, being, in, in being able to, you know, expose really atrocious things uh, and, and go up against big leadership, um, it's, it's quite commendable. It's, you know, for a foreigner like me, uh, it's, it's stunning. It's stunning on a daily basis. Uh, I, I'm very serious about this. I'd like to say one thing. You, you have the day, daily work on the media. You have the, the, the issue you're trying to raise. You have the difficulties you're facing. You have the threat you're receiving. And they're serious. Uh, medias all over the world are more or less under, under threat for from a different type as you were saying of of sources that's that's a fact on, on different levels of course but at the same time when you like me come back to south africa you have this feeling when you set foot here it's a free country mm -hmm. and there is an interaction between what you can find in the media mm -hmm. and what you can find in the society the way the society expresses itself I have degrees of comparison. I'm, I'm going to the Middle East, I'm going to Europe, yeah. I'm going to whatever, upcoming Asia for a certain time. I cherish the way the, the people I'm interviewing all over the country in many different types of places, in many different types of, of, of social classes, all type of races, everything, can express freely opinions, have opinions and can express them freely. Um, it looks like a sort of um, obvious thing. It's not. Mm. And the reason why it works so well, the, re the reason why you have this, because we're talking about things happening in different spheres of the society. Uh, and what is happening on, on, in Twitter is very important. It's central, can have very dangerous consequences. Mm. But it remains a sphere. So how do we see the, 
the whole of a society, how do we grab this thing which is the, the, the national spirit? And again, I insist, uh, I've been living here for 10 years and I've been roaming everywhere always with pleasure because of that. This feeling of the, the, the layer of, of freedom which is interacting with the quality of journalism, it goes together. I agree. And I want to say this because uh, maybe as a foreigner, it, it's important to... <laughs> I, I know for each country, sometimes someone from outside see things and say, wow, you know, it's pretty good. And, and you tend to forget a little bit mm. about the qualities. Mm. And it's a natural thing, I know. Mm. That, that's why I, I'm taking so much time to try to elaborate on this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the very reason why <coughs> it's existing, it's because of the media, and the very reason of the quality of the media is because of the society. Mm -hmm. So it goes around and around. Mm. And to, um, you know, I think to emphasize that, we, you know, I was at, uh, last year, or earlier this year rather, this year has been very long, <laughs> um, I was in Tanzania, mm. right, um, and I was there, uh, I'm also the deputy chairperson of the International Press Institute, mm. and we had a press freedom mission to Tanzania, because there have been a number of complaints of a narrowing environment for media in Tanzania. Yeah. And some of the things I saw there and some of the thi you know things that I heard there shocked me to the core. This is, you know, basically right next door to South Africa where you know where entire news publishers just get shut down mm -hmm. for months on end, mm -hmm. right? Because something that you have you have published has been deemed to be uh, not of a good quality or, or too provocative. Mm -hmm. um, and entire news publishers get shut down. The basically the director general of the uh, information ministry told me that he sometimes summons an entire newsroom to his office mm. um, and he was quite proud of this he's mm. telling me like right up until you know the sports reporter he you know calls them to account for stories that they have published um, and when you know when you listen to things like that you are very grateful and you al it also offers you some perspective yeah. right for um, the media environment in South Africa but I think that we would be remiss you know, in South Africa, to be talking about our own issues. And we do have issues and we do have some threats to media freedom that we must be vigilant about. But we would be remiss to, you know, just bask in the glory of our own achievements without thinking about mm. what's happening basically right next door. Mm. And Tanzania is one example, I think. Kenya. Zimbabwe. Yeah. Um, yeah. You, know, the, you know, there are so many examples mm. across the continent, not far from South Africa, where the situation is much more uh, dangerous to be a journalist. I will be taking those calls, and I do see you in Jabulo. I will take those calls on 891 Let's just quickly go to the headlines now with Utsulo Saku at 2.30. Hashtag SAFM Life Happens. So we are discussing Media Freedom Week, uh, which we kicked off today. And this is in light of, obviously, uh, Black Wednesday, which is coming up. And uh, my panel of guests are Jean-Philippe Remy, who is a bureau chief of Le Monde. It's a French publication, a newspaper publication. I'm also joined by Khadija Patel, who is an editor-in-chief at Mail and Guardian, and uh, Azola Dayile, who is a researcher and media monitoring uh, uh, Africa. I do see that on the line, Quinita Hunter is on the line. I'm not sure. She keeps coming on and off, and I think the problem is uh, with the line, so we'll get that sorted out. But we were discussing earlier on about just some of the difficulties that other colleagues are facing around the world, actually, not just in the continent, but around the world. 
I, I wonder, and any one of you can chip in here. I, you know, I, I looked at, uh, Jean-Philippe was talking about how, of course, because of the society um, that we live in, that we, it, it's a reciprocal relationship of the quality of journalism comes through in that way. But I, I, I think of South Africa as um, a kind of country that does what it does because of what we saw in 94. So we can fight hard and win hard, you know, and win very, very big. So we, we've got something to show for it. We've fought hard and there was some sort of reward at the end. So we keep going that way. But I also wonder about the fatigue. I wonder about the fatigue and I also worry about copycat strategies where you see around the world other leaders getting away with intimidation of journalists and, and murder of journalists mm -hmm. and so on and, and very chilling, becoming more rife, more high profile and so on and where people get away with it, where nations get away with it, how long we can keep up with momentum of what we've got going here in this country. Do, does anyone else take, do you want to take a cherry on that? Yeah. Um, there's something which is very interesting in the year we've just been in the middle of <laughs> living. Um, the, the, the way events unfolded in Sudan yes. uh, was particularly fascinating. This is a country where the repression was absolute, no press freedom at all, mm. newspapers like literally closed on demand, this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And, and there was a censorship which was very effective. Yeah. And behind this wall of impossibility to uh, think, express and transmit and communicate things, there was a whole society again who was organizing itself there was a whole world of people who were connecting with each other and who came up with not only a way of demonstrating against the power, mm. but also uh, suggesting a new society. They, they, they really, really came up right from the outset with a, a complete form of society they were wanting to see happening in Sudan. Mm. And if you jump from this continent to other parts of the world, you will see some similar things. Um, the way people are protesting at the moment has a kind of similar pattern which suppose a kind of desire for proper information in a way. Mm -hmm. the, re the very reason why the people were so angry in Sudan was also because they were fed up with the level of corruption mm -hmm. of the few people who were controlling the economy. Yeah. And they were sharing information about this. Who has taken the billions? Who has taken control of this type of industry? They knew it well, and so they were shocked and hoping for a better future. They, they decided to be involved in the movement of protest. It was pretty tough because the repression was pretty hard. So it tells you that this desire for better, which is always very difficult to define, it might vary from one country to another. It must be the same all the time. I'm not even sure. But there's one thing, and this sort of demand for information is not uh, only for a sort of, of, of comfort of mind. Mm -hmm. It's a basic requirement. And the reason why we're talking about this so seriously and try to understand, it's because it's so important, finally. So the, the very nature of the, the economy we were mentioning and the changing way it's, it, 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 we, we, we've seen over the, the, the last years uh, is entirely influenced by this phenomenon. Uh, I will take the example of Le Monde again. The, the sales 
of the print, which was again supposed to be declining, uh, have gone up in moment of people wondering what is happening. Yeah. Uh, there, there might be uh, something serious happening. Yes. Let's buy some print. Let's buy. So this, the core of this desire is difficult to define, but I think that's what we're talking about yeah. and what we're trying to define and 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 defend I suppose. Kunita Hunter I want to uh, ask you to join us in this conversation she's an award-winning South African political uh, journalist at the Sunday Times and good afternoon Kunita I hope you're well are you good? Very well thank you thank you for having me. I don't know how much of this conversation you've caught but we are basically discussing media freedom and, and maybe let me just start with the very basics for you you feel as a South African journalist that the media is free here? Yeah, I think it is. And I think that, um, you know, we have the, the constitution on our side, a very progressive constitution and section 15 of the constitution really enables us to do our job without fear or, or, or favor. But unfortunately, um, there has been, as is the case globally, um, efforts to, to diminish this type of freedom that we have as the media. Um, and, and they are efforts to encroach into our space. Uh, and curb this media freedom, whether it's in the form of harassment, whether it's the form of censorship, um, or whether it's in the form of just, uh, you know, uh, bad internal, uh, bad governance within media institutions. So there is a litany of problems that, that persist in the space that we operate in that has the potential to curb this media freedom that we so enjoy. And that's why it's important to have platforms like these to talk about the importance of media freedom because it's something that we have to safeguard because if we don't mm. safeguard, it will be taken away from us. I will take those calls. And Jabula, I did say I'm going to take your call. Good afternoon. You're calling us from Alberton. Hi. Hi. Good afternoon. Thanks Hi. for your patience, Jabula. Yes, no problem. Thank you. Yeah, so for me, it's a, it's a very interesting conversation. But there's an aspect that I'm missing, that of the rights of uh, media workers as workers. Uh, I, I certainly feel that they are right because I'm not taking it. I'll give you an example. Safety. Uh, South Africa is routinely referred to as the protest capital of the world. But when last did you see a South African journalist who repeated out with a bulletproof vest in mm. As compared to, for example, a BBC or CNN journalist who come to South Africa with the knowledge and the preparation for knowing the conditions on the ground. So, yes, while organizations such as Sanef exist, I think their interests are certainly not with the workers in the media space. <laughs> and as long as those rights are not taken care of, I don't think they are free. Sure. Jabula, uh, that's such a, a very important point. I'm going to pause here and I'm going to ask you to just, I guess, think about that for a minute while we take a quick break. And we'll be back with my panel as we discuss Media Freedom Week. At SFM Radio and at Pimelo Mutile on Twitter. Media freedom is what we're discussing this afternoon. I'm joined by Jean-Philippe Remy, who is an editor, um, uh, bureau chief in, in South Africa and Africa uh, for the newspaper Le Monde. Uh, Khadija Patel, editor-in-chief of the Mail and Guardian. Uh, Azola Daile, who is a researcher at Media Monitoring Africa. I'm also joined by Kunisa Hunter, a journalist at the Sunday Times. And thank you very much, uh, everybody, for staying with us. So there was a caller before we went to an ad break who spoke about the rights of the worker, mm-hmm. the, the journalist and it's hard isn't it when the um, media houses have so little to work with 
to protect also the journalists on the ground. Anyone who wants to take that here? Yeah, but I think that the point that he makes is absolutely sound. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That um, in South Africa particularly, we've been failed by many uh, unions that mm-hmm. are meant to be representing media workers. Many of these unions are rudderless yeah. and don't uh, and don't actually come to the defence of uh, you know of the rights of media workers as workers. Mm. Um, this is it, it is a huge problem, and I think that uh, it's something that organisations like Sanef have to urgently grapple with, mm. because as the number of journalists dwindle, mm. um, you know, latest survey showed that you know we are fifty percent down uh, compared to uh, you know ten years ago. Yeah. Um, who exactly is going to stand up for the rights of workers? And I think that, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, coming back to what you said earlier about juniorization of newsroom and, you know, the safety of journalists, whether it is providing them with, uh, you know, trauma counseling even, or with the right care when they go out um, into, uh, you know, into the throes of a violent protest, we have to also think about, I believe, um, you know, predatory ownership as a threat Mm. to media freedom in South Africa Mm. and indeed much of the rest of Africa Mm. um, that for a very, very long time there was an elite of media owners who made a lot of money out of this Mm. um, to the detriment really um, of the working conditions of journalists. And and, and maybe to the point about the juniorization of newsrooms is that a junior journalist is not going to fight in the same way mm. for their rights like a senior journalist it's it's a problem you know they they're not going to to be fighting their bosses and saying well i'm not leaving without xyz you know they'll just kind of you know do what they need to do Quanita, do you want to add your voice to that yeah i think as the junior person <laughs> <I think laughs> oh no you've got awards now you can call your shots <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I think that um you know, when we talk about the juniorization of, of newsrooms, which is obviously a real phenomenon, we don't talk about the very young people mm. that are doing things, that are forced or are proposed to do things that people with maybe 20 or 30 years of experience previously would do. So the level of danger that you're mm. exposed to is a lot more. The level um, of harassment and the level of bullying is a lot more. Our uh, you know, the seniors in newsrooms didn't have the type of harassment that we face now uh, almost daily uh, because of contact, uh, you know, being close contact with the audience through social media, etc. And so when you talk about um, you know, all of these problems, you have to talk about, you have to talk about um, mental health care for mm-hmm. journalists. And I think that mental health care is also a media freedom issue because harassment leads to censorship and censorship does not lead to free media. And so if we allow journalists to be censored, to be bullied and to be harassed on a daily basis, uh, just because they're doing their jobs, then that is a real attack on the media. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think that um, there needs to be policies in every single newsroom, whether it's a community uh, uh, media organization or a large uh, media organization um, that supports the mental health of journalists that allows for debriefs, that pays for therapy if necessary, so that we don't have a burnout culture, mm-hmm. that we don't w- uh, force young journalists to, to be brave in situations that are actually nice mm-hmm. That's such an important point. I know a journalist, a very senior journalist, who brings her trauma from apartheid days 
And one of her biggest issues was that at no point in the entire career, it wasn't one publication, it wasn't one media house, but everywhere she went, nobody ever took care of her mental health. And I eventually, it's a yeah, it is, it's a cultural thing. Uh, I would love to welcome on the show as well, Pagamile Thubu, who's just called us and she's a NUMSA national spokesperson and a former journalist. Pagamile, thanks for calling. Good afternoon, Pamela, and good afternoon to your guests and to your listeners. Mm. Well, um, the reason I was, I thought it was important to call, I think, first of all, thank you for creating the platform for us to engage on this very important topic. <laughs> I myself was a journalist for a long time before uh, joining NUMSA as its national spokesperson. Yes. In fact, just before I left uh, journalism officially, I was involved in the workers' movement at a media house called ENCA. Mm. Um, and that was because we felt that um, as workers, our rights were not being looked out for, our rights were not being protected. And this is certainly um, across all media houses, yeah. this is a problem. I mean, I'm, I'm listening to, to Kanita, for example, talking about mental health issues. It's, go, it's impossible to impose policies like that in newsrooms when journalists uh, are too terrified to confront their own editors about how they are being treated. And when we talk about media freedom, that's the type of freedom that we should actually be talking about. Not the freedom of editors to say whatever they want to say, but it should also include the freedom of media workers to be organized, from freedom, for, for media workers to benefit from things like the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, which stipulate that workers should get paid overtime, um, the, 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 the labor law in relation to, uh, if you're talking about, for example, implementing policies in relation to the mental health of journalists, um, you can't do that if you're in a newsroom where the editor, uh, where the editor's word is final on all things. And as a journalist, you don't feel empowered to raise your voice about these very important issues. My own personal experience as a journalist, I did not feel as a journalist, that I had that, the freedom to confront my employers about my working conditions. Mm. And sadly, that still remains largely the case for many journalists in many media houses. You have um, freelancers who are exploited daily for doing very important work um, on behalf of media houses, but when they're not paid or when they're being abused, there's no recourse, there's nowhere for them to go. And so when we talk of, when we say South Africa has uh, free media, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really convinced of that because I don't believe that media workers in this country are genuinely free in the true sense of the word um, because in many respects their labor rights are trampled on on a daily basis mm. by the very media houses that uh, claim to be pushing an agenda of media freedom. Sure. I mean, that's, that's a lot. Um, and, and I will continue to those, take those calls on 0891-104-207. Uh, labor rights, uh, freelancers, journalists as, as workers and being seen as people with rights. That's a conversation I think that's going to spark a lot of interest. And uh, we'll continue with that. And I do see you, Sizwe. Uh, I will take your call in a short while. Hashtag SAFM Life Happens. Thank you so much for staying with us. We are discussing media freedom. And uh, we were talking to Pagamile Thubi just uh, before we went to the ad break, who was talking to us about labor rights and, and uh, media practitioners as people without um, rights at all in this country. I want to give anyone an opportunity to respond to that. 
Yeah, for me, I mean, it's so peculiar and ironic that um, during the dark days of, of apartheid, there was, you know, a well-functioning, um, you know, media movement, uh, the Union of Black Journalists, which today has, uh, you know, sort of transformed to become what is SANEF. Uh, but in post-94 South Africa, there is an absence, you know, of that kind of effective um, organization that yeah. organizes uh, journalists and protects them from, um, you know, all kinds of all kind of things. We I, I know that there was an organization called Mwasa at some point, but I also don't, don't know what happened to that. So it's what very What causes ironic. that? I mean, let's just unpack that. Mm. What causes that? So, um, you know, I think as Jean-Philippe said, you know, this is actually a global problem. Yeah. Um, right now, or at least, I haven't kept tr- track of this, but at least a month ago, uh, up until a month ago, um, big publishers in the U.S. were also struggling with the same issue where, uh, you know, journalists were refused permission to actually organize. And I know um, in the BuzzFeed newsroom in New York, there were, uh, you know, um, journalists would actually put up a new sign every day, uh, XXX days, uh, since we've been refused permission to organize, uh, stuff like that. Um, And I think that's that's the irony that Mm -hmm. we're dealing with, that media Mm. um, and journalists and newsrooms or, you know, and news publishers uh, talking about democracy as a fundamental to their existence, but a lot of the space within which we work mm-hmm. is often not free. It's often not a democratic space. And that's something that goes to the heart of what you know we need to talk about when we talk about transforming newsrooms yeah. and also to- transforming the ideals of that of those yeah. spaces. Yeah. I mean, part of it perhaps also goes to the heart of uh, you know commercializations of these properties uh, where these owners at some point you know what's what's paramount of interest to them is it the news or is it the bottom line and that conversation comes up all the time where you have essentially a newsroom with everybody in it with the right intentions and the right hearts and everything that is right but the owners of this publication are have different agendas and so on Cizwe, let me come to you uh, you calling us from emma Lathlene. hi hi sorry that, that last point was very interesting I'd just like to add on that we, we live in a society where the black race is an inferior race in this world. And um, throughout the years, uh, media um, has, has almost uh, pushed black inferiority mm-hmm. and white supremacy. Now, I want to know, is there a conscious effort within the media room? I know that uh, the lady just spoke about that uh, um, the, the journalists and the people want to do the right thing, but the environment doesn't allow you. But is there a, a way or a conscious effort to, to, to reverse that and, 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 and uplift black consciousness? Because right now, um, inferiority is really uh, affecting our people in a, in a negative way. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, Jean-Philippe, in the, your neck of the woods, I mean, are people pushing back to try and get um, you know, journalists to be given the space to do what they do best in, in the best possible conditions? You know, regarding this, this question, uh, I think it belongs to a, a broad set of important issues which have been probably neglected by the medias a long time ago. We were, most of us, entirely devoted to politics, mm-hmm. simple mm-hmm. as that, because the, the line of the what has been explained, fought for, w- w- was politics. Yeah. And yeah. we are actually, I say we, uh, I suppose it could work, um, inclined to, to understand more the subtleties of, of societies and explain it to our readers. I'm writing for a French newspaper. What, what is my job? My job is to explain to people who are in France or elsewhere but li- reading French 
what happens to other people in other parts of the world yeah. for their own benefits. What happens in South Africa happens to them, uh, matters to them. Yes. What happens to the question of uh, black consciousness matters to people in France as well. Mm. So. Uh, we all know that everything becomes global in a way. I have to say this word again. Um, the the nice thing is that we have more interest in the media and try to explain more and try to understand more. Uh, on the other hand, it creates more frustrations. Uh, expectations of all sorts that we can't fulfill. Uh, we're not going to explain the whole of society and change the society as it has been conceivable to do it on political way because it was much more focused we're talking about general issues we are in a phase of humanity where we are redefining the whole identities where we don't know exactly where we're heading I hope it's a nice direction so all the questions we are raising have to got linked with this um, Khadija is, is it difficult when when you sit with um owners of publications and I'm sure you speak to uh, with other colleagues as well to bring up for instance issues of mental health because it's, it's a cost thing right as well uh, is it difficult to to bring that conversation to people who own media media houses I mean I can only speak of my own experience yeah. here and I'm beyond uh, thinking that it's too difficult and it's something that I uh, you know that I demand mm. um, I hope that you know that in time to come we have a more procedural approach in how to deal with this but the the need for it i think we've we've gone beyond questioning or debating the need for this yeah. um it mm. is an absolute integral to uh you know to us ensuring that we have that we have staff yeah. at the end of the day because um you know else we're going to have very quick levels uh you know of burnout but also we're going to have a tortured environment in which we work in mm. um, and that creates all sorts of issues so I think that you know in my experience I'm you know fortunately I did not have um, you know uh, lots of opposition mm. to this but at the same time I have to think about clever ways about uh, negotiating this and um, actually trying to find innovative ways of raising funding for this and that's uh, that's the reality of this that unfortunately we're not going to get all of our answers from media owners yeah I'm going to quickly wrap it up uh, because we've run out of time. Kanita, I'm asking and I'm going to ask everybody, I suppose also Jean-Philippe, those who are on the ground, how are you taking care of your mental health? Firstly, you know, by, by going for therapy and, and it's something that I only realized that I needed, you know, after battling with, with my own uh, uh, levels of anxiety, etc. But also creating an environment by speaking out about my own struggles uh, so that other people can, can realize that it's absolutely normal and actually enabling to your career to go and seek help. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that I have opted to do, to create an awareness, to actively speak to my peers, to speak to editors, to say how, you know, that it is an issue you need to take care of yourself. The bravado that was situated by our seniors and editors who covered apartheid perhaps, and, you know, it just meant that, they, you know, they just suck it up. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind of bravado leads to the transparency, leads to burnout, leads to journalists, good journalists leaving the field. And so the only way that good journalism can be sustainable is that if mental health is prioritized, and so for me, it's about creating awareness and also motivating people and also just spreading a level of empathy mm-hmm. that so-and-so had covered a very traumatic rape case. If you talk about the draft uh, uh, mm-hmm. racist case, 
the, the, the transference of trauma in covering those kind of things is profound. And that's why we need to have mechanisms. They don't have to be tons of money. They don't have to be a therapist for every single journalist. But mechanisms in place where it comes back to our humanity as people, that we as, as, as journalists are at the forefront of the ugly belly of this country. We see the worst of the worst. And by creating mechanisms and just creating a level of empathy and awareness to say, we need to make sure that we are okay so that we could do our jobs better. Because if we are not okay, if journalists are intimidated, if journalists are harassed, then we are not fulfilling um, the job that the Constitution empowers us to do. Konita, I really thank you for the time that you've given us. Uh, award-winning journalist in South Africa, Jean-Philippe Reme, is our uh, journalist who's here as a bureau chief here from Le Monde, a French uh, publication. Khadija Patel, a chief of Mail and Guardian. And I'm also joined by Azola Daile, who is a researcher at Media Monitoring Africa. We've run out of time. I'm so sorry, everybody. Let's do this again tomorrow. It's three o'clock.